Good morning. How many of you know what grokking means? Thank you. Almost everybody, I'll define it for you, but it's nice to know I'm not the oldest person in the room. <laughs> so grokking comes from uh, Robert Heinlein's novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. It means to intuit, basically, to know something beyond just through reason or, or tradition. Uh, Baruch Spinoza, how many remember him? No, he was. <laughs> any friends of Baruch in the room, right? So, 1600s, Baruch Spinoza said there are three kinds of knowledge or three ways of knowing things. One he called the imagination, by which he meant inherited tradition. Not using your creative imagination. I mean, someone made something up and passed it along, and you simply accept it as truth. Because that's the weakest way to know something, because they, you know, all kinds of things are passed along. The second way is through reasoned thinking, logic. And the third way is, he didn't use the word grokking, he spoke Latin, so maybe he said gracus, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, was what he called uh, in, uh, intuition. And that's, there are certain self-evident truths in the universe that we are hardwired to know and you don't need to think about it rationally, and you don't need it to be passed down through any religious tradition or, or even scientific tradition, that when you contemplate the idea, you know it's true. And what I want to do is I want to talk about one of those ideas through, I mean, you could do it through the seventh principle, UU principle, the interdependent web of life, of which we are all a part. But I want to do it through this movie, Powers of Ten. And the reason I chose the movie for today is because today is power, Powers of Ten Day, right? It's been Powers of Ten Day for decades. I think it should be a UU holiday because uh, it really speaks to the seventh uh, principle and does so in a, in a fun way. Jill was hounding you at my, I was hounding Jill, like Jill was hounding you to watch the little nine minute Ames film, Powers of Ten. Anybody not see it? Okay, so I will describe the movie to you and Jill will ask you why you don't follow instructions later. <laughs> so how many of you have, have knew about it from before? So a few people. So here's, here's the idea of this movie. There's no plot. <laughs> it's two people who are having a picnic on the shore of Lake Michigan, uh, on, on the shore of, in Chicago. And they're laying down on a blanket, <clears throat> and they're in the center of your screen. And what the camera does, first it focuses on the two of them, and then it backs up. Right, so you've seen it when I describe it. It backs up 10 meters and then 100 meters and then it right, keeps, keeps going powers of 10 until you, first you see uh, the shore of the lake and then you see uh, the contour of the United States and then you see the, the, the globe and it just goes way out as far as we knew to go in 1967 when the movie was originally made. If you did watch it, you watch the remake, the 1977 version, which is colorized. The other one was black and white. So you go out farther and farther and farther. The couple is always in the center of the screen 
except you're looking at it from the Milky Way and from the solar system, so you don't see them anymore. But they're still in the center, and you go out into this, what ultimately becomes infinite darkness, in a sense, infinite space. Then when it gets out to the farthest reaches of what we knew to go to in 67, it then races in, and everything gets in reverse, and then you see Chicago coming up, and then you see the two of them on the blanket, and then it focuses on the back of the boy's hand, and it goes in uh, 10 to the minus, I guess it's millimeters, or what is it? Minus one. Minus one? Yeah. Oh, okay, millimeters, right? It's, we're talking, I think it's millimeters. And then it just keeps going that way. So you go into the skin and into the dermis and then into the structures of, you know, the atomic structure and the subatomic structure until it gets down to um, what was then the most, the smallest thing that they could, they could visualize, which was the nucleus of a carbon atom. And unlike when you went out and it ended up in vast darkness, this ends up in a wild, frenzied dance. Now, it's colorized, so it's a dance of colors, but that's probably just to help us visualize it, but this wild dance of energy. And you could probably, today, if, you had, if, if we remade the movie, you could go farther out and you can go farther in. And eventually we would talk about dark matter and dark energy, uh, the things that are the, the invisible structures of the universe that we can and I'll talk about my friend uh, Joel Premack in a minute in his book. Joel Premack uh, just in theorized that there's such a thing as dark energy and dark matter. Dark matter is actually like a skeletal structure of invisible matter that's holding the universe together. And then there's all this energy that's uh, pushing things out, but it's invisible. We can't see it. But most of the universe is made up of that. Anyway. We've now proven that. Joel thought it out. He, it was a thought experiment for him. He knew it was true. He grokked it. But then someone else took it from the uh, third way of knowing of intuition to the second way of knowing of reason and testing, and you can actually prove that it's there. OK. So you get the idea of the movie. It goes way out. It goes way in. Why is this of interest? And interest is, is too light a word. I'm passionate about this movie. I own the movie. I've got the, you know, the streaming one on my computer. I've got a DVD, which, uh, of course, can't play on your computer anymore because there's no slot. I have that. I even have a flip book. Remember flip books where you just <laughs> flip the pages and, and it animates things? I got the whole movie in, in a paperback. You can just flip it and watch it. Because I think this movie is revelatory. There are certain revelations that have come to humanity in the 20th century that we don't consider revelations because we're too flat in our thinking. But one of them, I think, is this movie. Another one is Earthrise. Remember that, that photograph? They're standing on the moon. They turn the camera back on the Earth, and you see the Earth rising, or even the, and I forget which Apollo mission it was when they took a picture, and you see for the first time blue the blue marble, yeah. right? The Earth floating in outer space. I mean, these are rev um, revelations to us of the true nature of the universe of which we are a part. Okay. Why is, what's the message here? So, I, I'm watching 
SpaceX and Virgin Galactic, and I'm all excited about Captain Kirk going into, you know, <laughs> boldly going where, you know, no octogenarian plus has ever gone before. <laughs> I, I love this stuff, but I think it's misdirected. You know, Jeff Bezos and, and um, Branson and, and a lot of these guys are really interested in getting off planet, going out into outer space. And I want to read you this quote from Buckminster Fuller. And Buckminster Fuller said, I've often heard people say, I wonder what it would be like to be on board a spaceship. And now you could do it if you have enough money. You could buy a seat and find out what it's like. I, I often hear people say, I wonder what it would feel like to be on a spaceship. The answer is very simple. What does it feel like? That's all we have experienced. We're all astronauts on a little spaceship called Earth. Right? And that was one of his famous books called Spaceship Earth. We are in space. Right? There's no outer space. There's just space. And we're in it. We're a part of that. And I think that's what the movie shows. But it does it from not just the planetary perspective, but it does it from the individual perspective. For about, I'm guessing the number, let's say three millennia or so, people in the West, Europeans in, in the West, have been influenced in our worldview first by the Bible and then by a certain kind of science. And both in the Bible and in this kind of science, there's a progressive devaluation of the human being. We don't matter all that much. In the Bible, we matter more. But the more you get into science, we don't really matter all that much. What the show tries, the movie tries to tell you is that we're actually at the center of the universe. Right? Now, the Bible said that, but in a very not interdependent way. Right? We are plopped into, on the planet to run things and make a mess of things so that when eventually we'll get off planet and go to heaven or hell or something. But what the movie shows is that we are in the center of the universe. I mean, if the universe is infinite, then, of course, wherever you happen to be is a center because it's infinite. But what I mean by that is that we occupy this odd band of existence, not just humans, but anything that you and I can see, the nature that you and I know. We occupy this band of existence that allows for us to be us. So in this book, uh, it's called View from the Center of the Universe. Joel Premack, the guy who intuited <clears throat> dark matter, dark energy, his last, he's retired now, he's in his late 80s, his last job was to run the committee of, on the Hubble uh, Space Telescope. He was the chairperson and they decide where to aim the telescope. So that was his last job. His wife, uh, his wife's name is Nancy Abrams. They wrote this book together, which really means that Nancy wrote the book, because Nancy is a science writer. So she wrote the book, but both their names on it. They were here. I brought them to uh, MTSU years and years and years ago. I don't know if anyone saw them. But uh, I saw a, pr a, a presentation they made to NASA about this book, and I was so impressed that I contacted them and said, what would it cost 
to bring you to MTSU. And they were very generous. We actually raised the money we could afford it. And they, they were just brilliant. I want to read you a couple of passages from the book. And I rarely read, but it's, I rarely read things to you. But they do a better job than if I just try to talk it through. So, and I think this is apropos, this is apropos to nature itself in their book, but apropos to the movie. We humans are rare and precious, existing at the almost geometric mean of the largest thing we can imagine and the smallest thing we can rationally discuss. And we are made of the rarest substance in the universe, atoms beyond helium, which accounts for less than 0.1% of the universe. To say I am human can mean I stand midway between the largest and the smallest things in the universe. That's what the movie shows. I can trace my lineage back 13.8 billion years. Right? Anyone having a birthday? <laughs> yeah, when, when's your birthday? Oh, so your birthday's really coming up. I won't ask you how old you are, but whatever your age is, <clears throat> however many candles, you know, those candles that Ryan's going to put on the cake, add, Ryan, add 13.8 billion to it, because that's really how old Carla is. <laughs> so if you were feeling old when you walked in, you should really feel. My atoms, this is Nancy writing, she says, my atoms were created in stars blown out in stellar winds or massive explosions and soared for millions of years through space to become part of a newly forming solar system, my solar system. And back before those creator stars, there was a time when the particles that at this very moment make up my body and brain were mixing in an amorphous cloud of dark matter and quarks. Intimately woven into me are billions of bits of information that had to be encoded and tested and preserved to create me. Billions of years of cosmic evolution have produced me. That is mind-blowing. But when you read it in a book, it's not the same as getting a, a visual sense of it, which I think you get in the movie. Now, you can't go into the whole 13.8 billion years in the movie. They don't do that. They're just showing you that there's this vast emptiness and when you go inside, it's an equally vast, it's not empty, but it's, there's no thing there exactly. But the things that you and I value, you and I basically, and animals and trees and all of that, we exist on this little band that allows that to happen. I mean, if the earth was just a little closer to the sun, we would just be fried. We couldn't exist. If we were a little further away, we'd be frozen and we couldn't exist. So we have this narrow band of existence for our type of existence, right? I mean, there's other beings, but this is us. So then one last thing from her. A great obstacle to experience, experiencing ourselves in cosmic space and time is the habit of considering the universe to be out there, right? That's where you know, Buckminster said people are always asking, oh, what it's like to be in a spaceship out there? Well, you're on a spaceship right now, which we're slowly destroying, not so slowly, actually. But we're destroying our own spaceship. So then we're going to end up you know, free-floating and, and without the ship, and then we're in big trouble. We're in the habit of considering the universe to be what's out there, 
with ourselves as somehow objective observers. <clears throat> we don't normally think of reality as funneling from great galaxy clusters into us and spreading cell to cell, then soaring inward to the molecular level, the atomic, the quantum levels. Again, that's what the movie's trying to show you. And our humanness is the fulcrum at the center of the entire process, but we need to. We need to experience the universe from the inside. Every great mystical tradition tells you that. You know, in Sanskrit, it's tat tvam asi. Thou art that. You are the vastness. In the Hebrew Bible, the phrase is ein od milvado. There's nothing else but this happening. Sadly, we just don't speak in those terms because we don't experience things in those terms. And one of the reasons we don't is that we've, I don't know what, exactly what the word is, but we've, we've left out that third kind of knowing, the grokking, and we focused on either what we receive from tradition, which is humans are really, are, we have souls that are separate from the material world, that will outlive the material world, that are taken from somewhere and plopped in. I, I was once with a, a Catholic priest. We were having this discussion on uh, birth control, and he was against it. And the reason he was against it was that there are these souls who are lined up. And he didn't think it was a metaphor. He said literally, there are these infinite number of souls waiting in a line to be shot into a fertilized egg. Humans, right? And if you don't fertilize an egg, then people have to stand in line longer. <laughs> and, and who wants to do that, right? So, <laughs> and that, he really believed that, that we were, my true self was, before I was born, somewhere in heaven, standing in line, <clears throat> I don't know what it was doing. I mean, what do you, you know, you're standing in line for 13.8 billion years, I guess. And then finally, my mom and dad decide to, to have sex, and then my mother's egg is fertilized, and suddenly I'm standing in line, maybe I'm reading a newspaper, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Heavenly Times, I don't know, and suddenly, <laughs> now I'm, I'm, I'm in her womb. That kind of thinking is ludicrous, but common. That's sort of the traditional inherited worldview in the West, anyway, uh, in, in parts of the West, uh, biblically oriented West. That kind of thinking makes us aliens in the universe. We come from somewhere else, we're gonna go somewhere else. We need to experience the universe, as she says, from the inside, that this is my body, the universe is my body. But our religions don't really let us do that. Now, again, our religions meaning the Abrahamic religious traditions, non-mystical, take the mystics out, but the mainstream Abrahamic traditions, that's what we get from the first kind of knowing in Spinoza. The second kind of knowing, which is rational science, is still, though we're pushing hard against it, in most of our brains, I think it's still Newtonian. You know, it still doesn't, uh, it doesn't give us that, that mystical sense of unity. There's a quote from, that I wrote down from Steven Weinberg's book, Gravitation and Cosmology, Principles and Applications of General Theory of Relativity. 
Oh, I guess the title makes me tired. But anyway, <laughs> he says, the more comprehensible the universe becomes, the more pointless it seems. That's not my experience. Even that 1967 movie, I don't get the sense of it being pointless. It's awesome. Now, it has no point in that it's not going anywhere. The point is the thing itself. So we have to begin to think in mystic terms. We have to begin to look at the world in, in the way the movie is trying to, to show us. One way to do that is to reclaim language from the mystics that will remind us of that. So I, I know probably a lot of this, the people, a lot of us in this room are God-phobic. You know, we don't like to use the word God um, because we immediately think of, you know, the most right-wing, politically defined God idea you can imagine. <clears throat> but we have to start using, I think, we have to start using the word God and then define it. And you can define it without having to come up with some non-religious way of understanding it. You can quote from religious texts. And, and, and you know, just, just the other day, I was talking on Zoom. I was doing this class. They were mostly Catholics. And we were talking about God. And I said, the best definition of God comes from your Saint Paul. So already, if they're going to argue with me, they're arguing, arguing with themselves. I said, St. Paul, Book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 28. Everyone knows it, so I won't quote it. <laughs> but St. Paul defines God as that in whom we live and move and have our being. That's what the movie shows. We're in the middle of this vast happening on a microscopic scale and a macroscopic scale, and we're right in the middle. We... You know, th this great reality, which I'm going to call God, because that's what the word is for most people, that God isn't some person out there in outer space. God is that in which we live and move and have our being. The Tao, if you're going to use Chinese terminology. Dharmakaya, if you want to use Buddhist uh, Sanskrit ter terminology. God is that in whom we live and move and have our being. If we started talking in those terms, I think it would be harder for people to dismiss the idea of this non-dual, vibrant, dynamic reality of which we are part. One last point I want to make, and then we'll come back a little bit afterwards and we can have a conversation. <clears throat> the last part is when it goes way out and people are in the center of the screen, but you can't see them because they're billions of years, light years away. But then they go in and you see this white guy um, with his and this is old, so it's not even J. Crew, but it's J. Crew like Ivy League outfit. And they go into his hand, and within just a millimeter, the whiteness is gone. The guy is gone. Everything that defines us, that we fight about, our race, our color, our creed, all that stuff exists only on the outer edge of our dermis. It doesn't exist when you go out there. When you see the whole world floating out of space, you don't see the nice, neat black lines that divide uh, the Czech Republic from Slovakia. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So you don't, you don't see that. You don't see North and South Dakota, which I have a hard time seeing anyway. It makes no <laughs> sense. But 
you don't see all those divisions. You don't, all you see, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, is a, a, a version of what Buckminster Fuller called the Dimaxion map or the um, planet ocean map where he made a distortion-free map of Earth. And when you do that, all you see is one landmass, very jagged, but one landmass, which includes all of the continents, one landmass surrounded by one ocean, which is basically what you see in, from outer space. You don't see the divisions. The divisions exist in our heads from that second way of knowing, because we intuit that that's stupid, but we operate from either the first way of knowing, which is tradition, which means I'm X, you're Y, I hate you, or from the more rational way of knowing, which is I'm X, you're Y, I hate you for a good reason, <laughs> as opposed to the third way of knowing, which is we're all in this together. So when you go into the, just beneath the surface, everything is, it's just oneness. Whether you go out or you go in, it's always this notion of oneness. So let me just read how she ends up. Um, so, well, I'll just, I'll just paraphrase it. So she says, while being in the middle allows us to recognize our precious, preciousness, right? You're different than I am. We're all different from one another. But that isn't us versus them. That's like, wow. Look how dynamic and diverse the universal creativity is. So I, I'm not saying we're all just tofu, right? Without any, any taste. We're all unique expressions of this one dynamic happening. Being in the middle allows us to recognize our preciousness while at the same time allowing us to intuit the greater wholeness of which we are a part. That's the message, I think, of powers of 10 day. I think it fits perfectly with the seventh principle, and I think that UUFM should uh, petition the Mother Church in Boston and say, we suggest a power of 10-day holiday so that all Unitarian Universalist uh, fellowships watch the movie you know, and have this discussion. All right, well, thank you very much. Uh, we'll come back a little bit, I think, and we can talk about this later.